Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Deborah Johnson, the author of The Secret of Magic, which was awarded the 2015 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, full disclosure for our listeners, I was part of the selection committee who was handed a stack of, say, 18 or so books to read through and uh, decide, you know, which should be nominated as one of our three finalists. And Deborah, I have to tell you, yours really stood out immediately um, among the pack, even though that there were some, you know, talented writers. Can I ask you, you. uh, what was your reaction to hearing that you had been nominated for the Harper Lee Prize? As I understand it, um, you know, the publishers are the one who, ones who submit the books. So did you even know that you were up for the prize? No, I was extremely, I was surprised and amazed and just gratified. It was a thousand different emotions because I had no idea they'd even nominated me. So it was just a wonderful, wonderful moment. So for our listeners who have not yet read The Secret of Magic, which I encourage everyone to do, I'm sure it would make a wonderful Christmas present, just throwing that out there. Could you tell us a little bit about the book and the plot? Well, the book centers on um, uh, the book starts in 1946 when uh, Regina Mary Robichard, who is a lawyer working with Thurgood Marshall at the Legal Defense Fund in New York, receives a letter, well, actually Thurgood Marshall receives this letter asking him to come and investigate the death of a decorated soldier in World War II uh, Mississippi. And Regina goes, and it is all about her experiences there, what happens, how justice is brought about, how the legal system works, and how other systems work as well in this complicated case for its time and its place. Now, Regina shares something with both you and I, um, I think, in that we were all raised in the North, um, and I actually, I grew up in Illinois, but worked for a newspaper in North Carolina um, as an adult. Uh, As I understand it, you two grew up in the North and then found yourself in Mississippi. How did your experiences um, in the South compared to what you had thought about the South before you moved there? It was, well, you know, the history is the history, and we all know that, so that remained the same. But the interaction of the people was something that I actually had not expected at all. I remember reading that when uh, when Charles Evers came back from the Second World War and went to his courthouse in Decatur, Mississippi, to register to vote, that the people who were opposing him, and they were in pickup trucks and with shotguns and rifles, the people who were opposing him and threatening his life were people that he had grown up with all his life and had hunted and fished with. And this was totally fascinating for me how this, it's, you know, easier to think of these things happening when you think of total the other. But in a situation like this where these were people he knew, it was just astounding to me and sort of drifted me toward the book that I wrote. Regina herself um, 
her father was actually lynched, um, but in Omaha, Nebraska. So she experienced this terrible violence, you know, up, up north. And I think that in the national conversation, often we talk about the South as the home of racism, as though, you know, segregation isn't even more startling um, up north. Uh, I thought it was particularly affecting how everything that Regina had sort of had in her head about what this experience is going to be like was challenged. Um, one element we didn't yeah. talk about yet was the secret of magic inside the secret of magic. In your book, The Secret of Magic, uh, there is another book called The Secret of Magic written by the mysterious M.P. Calhoun. First of all, what led you to have this book with inside a book? And um, what did you base that Secret of Magic and M.P. Calhoun on? I think that what fascinated me about this was the fact that I knew that there were uh, there was a dearth of uh, books written about African Americans uh, at in 1946, which is when my own book takes place, and so I wanted to take a book, invent a book that had an actual African American uh, child as the protagonist in this white world. Very few books were doing it at the time. And so Regina Robichard, who is the heroine of my book, the main protagonist, had read this book in when it first came out in the 1920s. And uh, she'd actually read it in the 30s, actually, and loved it. And I wanted to show how this book had influenced her and in a time when there were very few role models for her in her life, and especially Mary Pickett Calhoun, how she, who is the writer of that book, how she had been touched by that book as well. And it's probably not too much of a spoiler since it happened so early on in the book, but um, Regina discovers when she goes down to Revere, Mississippi, that it was Mary Pickett Calhoun who had written her. And she discovers that this woman who wrote her the note about um, the, the lieutenant who had been murdered was actually the renowned author M.P. Calhoun, a white woman. Um, it's, yes. you know, I was reading this, of course, in the context of considering it for the Harper Lee Prize. So that was really kind of inextricably in my mind. And I thought, you know, Mary Mary Pickett Calhoun uh, in this book uh, was said to have only written one book, this single book that was banned many places in the South. And mm -hmm. uh, you find out that she, you know, nothing is quite as it seems when Regina arrives. And I just found that fascinating. Did you base Regina's relationship with Mary P. Calhoun on any relationships that you had had in your own life? Not so much in my own life, but I was very much fascinated by the fact of a person writing one book and stopping. Since this was my second book, I just, you know, what would compel a person to stop their life's work? And especially if they had been very successful at it, as Mary Pickett Calhoun had been. Her book had been a national sensation. She'd landed, I think, on the cover of Time magazine. And so what would compel her? What deep reason would make her stop doing this? That 
very much interested me. And we won't spoil that for the readers. Since our listeners are mostly going to be attorneys, one of the things that really struck me about The Secret of Magic, especially when thinking about Harper Lee's book, To Kill a Mockingbird, was um, both of them are about the struggle between law and what we could consider true justice. Um, Mm -hmm. And Regina, who is one of the first, you know, African-American women attorneys uh, working with Thurgood Marshall, and I believe you based her on Constance Baker Motley, um, or at least the idea of her, uh, has devoted her life and her profession to the legal system. But what she finds in Revere, Mississippi, is the legal system had already spoken more or less, before she even got there with a grand jury declaring that, you know, Lieutenant Joe Howard's death was an accidental drowning. Uh, Right. And Regina has to decide between the letter of the law and justice. Do you see any parallels in recent events um, where there's just a, a true conflict between what the letter of the law says and what justice would actually require? Well, I mean, all kinds. They, you know, they just seem, this is a moment when they seem to be surrounding us as they did then. Because the law in the South, the Jim Crow laws, were very specific as to separation of the races. And these laws had to be countered and, um, and eventually changed. So definitely, I think that as this got to be more as people got more aware of the injustices that were being perpetrated in the name of law, that they rallied, and the nation rallied with them eventually. Mm -hmm. This is happening right now as well. Yeah, I agree. Thurgood Marshall is an actual character in this book, um, mentioned Mm. briefly sort of at the beginning and the end. Uh, You talk a little bit in your author's note about the importance Thurgood Marshall himself had for you and your family. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? My grandfather volunteered to fight with the uh, American forces in the segregated army in 1941 against fascism and, um, and Nazism in Europe. And um, he, all, but when he got back, Thurgood Marshall was absolutely his idol. Everything that the Legal Defense Fund was doing was very important to him. I can remember growing up in Kansas City, he'd be reading the Kansas City Call, and there would be some article about something horrible happening. And he would say, this looks really bad, but I know that Thurgood will be able to take care of this for us. And in many, many appearances that I make, generally there's a lawyer and Almost always, lawyers will come up to me and say that the reason they became attorneys was because of the work of Thurgood Marshall and the other lawyers at the Legal Defense Fund. I can remember one time when the book first came out last year that I had gone to the universe, to uh, Oxford, Mississippi, with, and uh, the University of Mississippi is there, and there was a law professor there, an African-American woman. And uh, the University of Mississippi has actually integrated within my lifetime. So this was, you know, just 
wonderful for me to meet this woman. But she had come from the Delta of Mississippi, which is one of the poorest places in the country. And she said that when she was a young girl, that her own uncle would, you know, say, oh, my goodness, this is a tough situation, but Thurgood will handle us for handle it for us, to the extent that she thought that Thurgood Marshall was like a member of the family who just didn't come home, some sort of an uncle or something. I mean, he was just that viscerally close to so many families, and what he was doing was just so important to us. As, and it became important to the world because from our civil rights movement, other movements have gone on as well, women. You know, just it's it's continuously snowballed. And you know, a lot of it is owing to the work that was done at the Legal Defense Fund in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Now, we know the reasons that brought Regina to Mississippi. What brought you to Mississippi? You know, I was living in Italy and had lived there for almost 20 years. And I decided, my son was in school here, and I decided, in the United States, actually in New Hampshire, but I decided, well, you know, it is uh, probably a good idea for me to move back to the United States because I didn't think he would come back to Italy at that point. And so I looked for a job, and I found one in Mississippi, and I came here sight unseen. What an adventure that must have been. It was, yes. Not such a, you know, people always say, wasn't it a big shock to you? Was it? Because, you know, I'm American, so coming, it was like coming home, even to a different part of home. But, um, yeah, it was, some things were very different because I hadn't actually lived in the United States, as I say, for almost 20 years. And so it was frozen, parts of it were frozen in time for me. So I wasn't really ready to see to it, you know, I wasn't read, I wasn't expecting the changes that had occurred in Mississippi during that time. Now, one of the odd coincidences in your book um, is that it was published at a time, and I, it must have been, you must have written this book and have completed it before we found out that Harper Lee was releasing another book. And, um, in your book, the woman who'd only written one book at the very end is ready to write a second. Uh, have you had a chance to read Harper Lee's new book? Did you have any thoughts about that? Yes, I did. I did. I read it almost immediately because the award came out at the same time that her book was published. So I got it almost immediately because I loved to kill a mockingbird so much and not just the book but the movie the score everything was just perfect about that so i was very anxious to read go set a watchman and i did i heard other people say that what was most interesting about it what a writer might initially write uh can be changed into something entirely different you know go set a watchman mm -hmm. apparently later became in her mind to kill a mockingbird. Have you ever experienced that as a writer, that the book you started to write did not end up becoming the book that you completed? Constantly. And even when you turn it in, even when I turned in um, The Secret of Magic, when it goes through the editorial process and you have a good editor, as I did with Amy Einhorn, it is it, it becomes just much, much different from what I had originally thought it would be. Even though the basic is still there, still the working of it, bringing it out, it changes it. But that's been my experience. 
even right now with the one I'm writing now, very, very different from what I thought it was going to be as I first started it. So, Deborah, I'm very intrigued about uh, the new book. What can you tell us about it? I understand you may not be able to share too much, but do you have any idea when it may be published? I've not finished writing it yet, so I don't have any idea when it's going to be published within the next couple of years, I should think. But it is, I wanted to write a, a gothic ghost story, a classic ghost story like Henry James or Edith Wharton had, or M.R. James had written, but put it in a modern setting. So that's what I'm writing right now. It's in the south. It's in the same town of Revere, Mississippi. This will be my the third book that I've set in that town, and... I'm enjoying it. At least today I am. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, the work isn't always, as I'm sure it is in the law, too. It's not always every single day is bliss. A lot of it is just work. But it's been pretty good so far, so I'm happy. Now, I may be reading too much into this, but a lot of the names in your book seem to call back to real historical figures or remind me of historical events, you know, Regina's mother's first name is Ida, which mm-hmm. made me immediately mm-hmm. think of Ida B. Wells. How did you yes. pick the name for the town of Revere? What did Revere mean to you? You know what? Revere actually came with my last book, The Air Between Us. I just, and I cannot remember how that name came to me. I think it was just its town, you know, its name. And so I can't really answer that question because I can't remember a moment when it was not Revere, Mississippi. I think that Revere, Mississippi, we were talking earlier about changing and editing. Revere, Mississippi, the way it is, its layout, its houses, its history, that's remained constant in these last two books and in the one I'm writing as well. But the name... I don't know where it came from. So The Secret of Magic, we leave Revere in 1946. And so in this new book, you'll be revisiting Revere, but present day, is that correct? Present day, though, it will um, uh, harken back to the 1950s and the beginnings of rock and roll. That's intriguing. Yeah. If you come into Mississippi, my state, you uh, almost every road sign that brings you in says, Welcome to Mississippi, birthplace of America's music. And that's what started me down this present path. Well, we will all be looking forward to that. Um, I think Thank that my you. last question for you is uh, as someone who, as you said, you spent 20 years away from America um, and then you returned to it. Over the period of time of your life and having been out of the United States and coming back to it, do you think that the problems we're facing now are different from the problems we faced then? What do you think has changed in the period of time since, you know, the the book, the 1946 to now? You know, as we're talking right now, there is a demonstration going on in Chicago right now for, with Black Lives Matter and over uh, the killing of a of a young man by a police officer. Uh, What perspective did living outside the United States give you um, to what we're going through now? I don't know. Let me think. The perspective, you know, but I always viewed everything as an American would view it. And I've always loved this country, even though 
I know, and what it stands for, and what it stands for actually to the rest of the world. And um, I, I asked you a very deep question. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm thinking. I think, I mean, there's just no doubt whatsoever that things have changed, and they've changed right here in Mississippi. I mean, we have, of any state, the most, uh, the highest percentage of black elected officials on the, on the local level of any state in the nation. So obviously, if you're talking about a time when African Americans effectively could not vote to this time, those things have changed. Does it mean so the the fight has shifted a bit? It does it mean that we that it's you know at all perfect because obviously it's not not with these terrible things that are coming to our attention right now, but at least we are facing them, you know, before it used to be in the time of the secret of magic, the book that I wrote, people did, you know, these things could happen and who cared. But now at least we ourselves as African Americans are standing up and a lot of people are standing up with us and we are getting a clearer sense of what is right and what is wrong. Can I just say too, the thing I found most chilling about the townspeople in The Secret of Magic was that mm. this wasn't a mystery. Everyone knew who'd oh, committed yeah. these terrible crimes. And the oh, central yeah. tension was, will anything come of that? Will anything be done? Yeah, I remember that was the major... I took all the corrections that my editor wanted because she really is fabulous, but that was the major one that I held back on. She said, well, where is the mystery if we know who did the murder? And I said, oh, Amy, the South was an oligarchy. Anybody, and not just blacks, poor whites, too. If you had money, you could pretty much do what you wanted to do. The question became comes, will, despite this, will these people be brought to justice? Deborah, that seems like a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for speaking with us today at the Modern Law Library. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. I I very much appreciate it. it. And thank Thank you all for listening.